Okay, today is January the uh, 12th. I was thinking, too bad it's not Friday the 13th. That would make it just fine for me because I had a black cat run right in front of my car on the way here. Friday the 13th, I could just... Okay. Um, We are going to have a Libronics class here at the church uh, not this Saturday, but the um, next Saturday, which will be the 21st. So, uh, Saturday the 21st at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to have a Libronics class here. So, I know some of you have recently got Libronics, and some of you uh, have had it for a while. And I've had requests to have another class, so we're going to have one. And I'll put that in the bulletin, but you might mark it on your calendar. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I don't know. Uh, They haven't contacted me. When, When would they have that? The third Wednesday? Okay, that would be the next next week, on the 18th. Would you remember to ask Karen? Okay. I need I need rubber bands and strings and post-it notes and everything you can think of. Okay, let's uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Moment of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness, for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity and the time that we have to come to this very nice facility that You have provided for us that we can feed upon Your Word. We pray that You will help us to remember how important it is to keep our spiritual momentum moving forward by consistently taking in Your Word, meditating upon it, and applying it. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're just going to jump right into it this evening. We'll go back a little bit where we were, just as a very short type of review. I'll go ahead and put the notes up for us. We're in the gospel, getting the gospel right. We are in the portion that is going to be fairly lengthy, which is just designated as faith alone. This is a critical, it's imperative that you recognize that when it comes to eternal salvation, that it's faith alone in Christ alone. We don't retreat from that. That is the bedrock foundation of the gospel. And unfortunately, it's extraordinarily misunderstood and confused A lot of people are confused about it, even as simple as it may be. And that's what we're going over are the ways that this has been twisted to try to insert works into eternal salvation, into the gospel, and how do we deal with it. Probably most people outside the circle of this church and other uh, Bible churches, other uh, people that you have as friends and maybe even relatives that 
are believers, <clears throat> outside of that circle, most people are going to subscribe to the idea that faith in Christ alone is not enough. There has to be something on your part outside of faith that is required in order to acquire, maintain, or prove that you have been born again. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. This is one of the last of several verses that I gave you to show that the Bible tells us through commands that we are not to get into immorality, carnality, all these different things. We look at different verses that encourage us to stay the course, to uh, do good works and so forth. And of course, this was set up by saying, if we automatically have within us the ability to persevere when we are truly saved, then why would the Bible have a need? Why would we find the need to go to the Bible to get encouragement or to have commands like this one to flee fornication? If you automatically, if you're truly saved, will persevere in good works to the end, why do we have these? So we have 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication, present active imperative. So we are to continue to do this. We produce the action of fleeing from it, and it's an imperative, it's a command. Actually, the Greek word for fornication is parnia, where we get uh, pornography. Flee fornication. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but he who commits fornication sins against his own body. So again, we have why command believers to keep on fleeing from fornication if they automatically persevere in good works. It would be superfluous. It wouldn't need, there would be no need for that. Some respond by saying that believers may temporarily fall into sin, but will surely repent and start producing good works again. Just about anybody that you would talk to with regards to persevering, enduring after you are saved will admit that it is not a constant line. For to have a constant line of persevering with no breaks in it would mean that you would have to be sinless. You would have to allege that after you are born again that you no longer sin. So even, and I've talked to people about this before that were into this type of uh, ideology, and they would admit, well, yes, we, we do. It doesn't mean that you never sin. That's very important because what they're saying is that persevering is not constant. It, it, there's variables in there. And so that's, the reason that's so important is because we need, we're talking about eternal salvation, and they say that if you're truly saved, you're going to persevere. There has to be some kind of measurable standard to tell if you're persevering or not. Are you with me? You understand that. But where is that standard? What is that standard? It can't be that, well, you just, you never sin. They say, well, you might fall away, you might get into carnality, you might get into sin, but then you're always going to come back. So, 
Their definition of persevering would not be continuous, but persevering some of the time and not persevering some of the time. What percentage or how long of the time would, you, would one be allowed to stop persevering or stop enduring before one would no longer be considered a true believer? Isn't that an interesting question? Don't you think it's relevant? Don't you think it's important? Listen, if we're talking about whether I'm going to hell or not, and they say you have to persevere, I know I'm not going to consistently persevere, so how long can I not be persevering? How long can I lapse into some sinful state before I would be determined either that I lost my salvation or I really never had to begin with? Where is that? Another question. How long could one stop persevering before he lost his salvation? And where in the Bible would one go to find these answers? This is something that we can challenge people who would say, if you're really saved, you're going to persevere. You're going to be obedient and you're going to do good works until the end. But it's not consistent, so there are variables. Okay, where are the variables? I want to make sure that I'm going to be one who perseveres. Where do, all, where do we always go to answer such questions? We go to the Bible. So someone that says you have to persevere, but you might fall out of it, but you always will get back. At Where is the measuring, determination line, whatever you may call it, that we can find in the Bible? One would expect to find answers to these questions if persevering is necessary to keep or to substantiate salvation, wouldn't you? God surely wouldn't say, okay, I want you to persevere. If you don't persevere, you're going to hell. Okay. But you're not going to persevere all the time. So where are the verses in the Bible that would say, if you go so long, you do so many things or certain things, then you're no longer persevering and you're going to hell. Where are those verses? These answers cannot be found because the questions are not relevant to salvation. Period. Perseverance has nothing to do with being justified before God because that requires faith alone in Christ alone. And that is it. When you're talking about persevering or not persevering, when you're talking about so many good works or how many sins can you commit and all that, none of that has anything to do with eternal salvation. And that's why you can't find some kind of mystery standard in the Bible to measure your behavior against to see if you're truly saved or not. Because there are no such verses because they don't have anything to do with eternal salvation. However, perseverance has everything to do with being justified before man. Being experientially sanctified, which takes place after one is born again by accepting the gospel. So perseverance is not an issue with regards to being born again to receive eternal life in order to go to heaven. Perseverance does not even enter the picture. However, after you're born again, there's a tremendous amount said in the Bible about that. We are totally encouraged to persevere, to stand firm for the faith. Uh, don't give away your... Uh, don't give up your confidence. Uh, keep that momentum going. All this has to do with after salvation. And when you confuse the two and try to connect them together with eternal salvation, it's a train wreck. 
So perseverance has nothing to do with the top circle because everything there is accomplished by God and is eternal. Perseverance is pertinent only to the bottom circle where the believer's volition and faithfulness are the issue. I think everyone here is familiar with the circles, I hope. Um, this is a new version of it here. Um, pardon? Uh, no, I don't want to give them out yet. I want to be looking up here. Uh, we have some made some hard copies of this. Uh, the, the, I think the copies that we made are black and white, right? But I'm told that we're going to get some colored ones maybe. Is that right? Okay. Um, if, if, what do you think would happen if I went to a typical church and I brought a screen, I put the projector up, and I said, okay, we're going to look at spirituality and, and we're going to look at carnality and we're going to relate that to positional and experiential sanctification. What do you think they do? And then I pop this on the board. I believe they'd be, <laughs> they would be leaving those chairs like rats on a sinking ship. What is this? This doesn't stimulate me. This makes me think. Well, it's not hard, really. We always start here. Actually, there are uh, three phases to life. Phase one is when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. And it just takes a moment, however long it takes to think, well, you know, that makes sense. I, I'm going to trust in Christ and not my own work. Boom. You got it. Essential. That's phase one. Phase two is what this is all about. And phase three is going to be determined with regards to what you're going to be by what happens here in phase two. Now, you all understand that. Phases. Okay. First of all, we start at the top. It's actually the easiest to deal with because... The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is what gets so many people because when you start talking about the ministries of the Holy Spirit to most people, they have no concept of what you're talking about, especially when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Go to most denominational churches and you mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you might as well be speaking Chinese because they don't have a clue what you're talking about, and yet it's key with regards to our position. What is our position after we believe in Jesus Christ? Well, our position is in Christ. Why? Because God the Holy Spirit baptized, which here means identified us with Jesus Christ, and that is a, something that is permanent. It never changes. It doesn't matter. I don't know who the worst believer ever was, but I doubt that he's in this congregation, he or she, but whoever it is, is still in Christ. They were in Christ from the moment they believed the gospel to the time that they check out, they're always in Christ. That's key to understanding up here. Of course, we're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. By the way, no Old Testament believers were ever baptized or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is only for the royal family of God who are uniquely identified with Christ because of this, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't get higher than that. That is royalty. We 
our spiritual royalty because we are intimately united to Him, identified with Him because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I could go on and on, but that's you get the idea. Other things happen. By the way, this happens in a moment of time. This happens in a moment of time. Also, we have imputed righteousness. Why is that important? A lot of people are trying to be righteous enough to be accepted by God. This is what unbelievers are trying to do. But we realize when we accept the gospel that we are sinners, we are condemned, our only hope of staying out of the lake of fire is accept the free gift of salvation which is offered through the substitutionary atonement on the cross by Jesus Christ. And when we believe that, we accept the gift, we automatically, boom, get His righteousness. Can you get better than God's righteousness? No. We, and that's in a position. When He sees us, what He sees is His own righteousness because He imputed it to us. The reason He could impute it to us because He imputed to His Son that was perfect our sins. It balances out. Those are called judicial imputations. These are all permanent, and they're all accomplished by Christ. And actually, there's many more things that happen, but this will suffice. Everything here is done by God. It's done in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and it is permanent. And we call this, these all, all these things are positional. That's where we are with regard to Christ in our position, and it is an accomplished fact. We look back on that. This is something that happened. And where a lot of people get mixed up or confused is, well, I don't feel any of those things. If you ask me, what did it feel like when I was baptized by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit? And when I got God's own righteousness and when I got eternal life and when I became an ambassador and I got a spiritual gift and it got, oh, no, what did that feel like? Well, I don't know. I couldn't tell any difference myself. I didn't even know they were going on, and most people don't. Do you think most people could articulate to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit when they're born again for the first time? All they know is someone told them that God has a remedy for us with our sin problem. Christ took our punishment, and if we accept His atonement and nothing else, just rely on Him, then we have eternal life. We can understand that much. The top circle has nothing to do with persevering. God does it all the moment we believe. Period. It's done. Over and out. Now, understanding the difference between positional and experiential is essential in understanding the Bible. We haven't got to experiential yet, but I want to make sure everybody is on the same page with this. That's not that hard to understand. That is our eternal security. You, if you don't understand what I just explained then you think something still depends on you to go to heaven and you still don't get it. Do we, do we deserve any of this just because over here we believed in Jesus Christ? Is there any merit in that? No, we're going to see all the merit goes to the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Y'all ready for the bottom? At that same point, when all this takes place, we are also filled with the Holy Spirit. For the first time, unbelievers aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't even have a human spirit. By the way, that's another one of the things that happens up here. You go from being dichotomous, soul and body, to trichotomous, 
body, soul, and spirit. There's a lot of things that happen up here. But anyway, uh, for the first time, this is obeyed, Ephesians 5:18. be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perfect passive imperative. You are commanded to receive something. It's not an active voice. If you had to do something for it that had any merit or credit, it would be an active, in the, um, active voice. Okay. How are you filled with the Holy Spirit? When you believe in Jesus Christ, boom, in the gospel, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Here you have plus H. I was going to do this today, and I just didn't have time. You'll see if I ever get on with what I've got here, what I was doing. Uh, there's a lot of other things that happen other than just plus H, but that kind of sums it up. That's what everybody wants. Let everybody be happy, but nobody knows how to be happy because everybody is trying to make more money, uh, get more status, get prettier, get thinner, uh, whatever it is that's going to make them happy never makes them happy because they don't realize happiness is a direct corollary to your relationship with God. And if your relationship with Him is, is what it should be, then you're going to be happy and it doesn't matter what's going on. You could be fat. You could have acne. You could, you could be a social reject. Uh, you get the picture. For the first time. Now, that is tremendous. If I just ended the story there, we could walk away and say, all is well. But all is not well. And you know why? Because this is only temporary. This filling of the Holy Spirit, it only lasts until you and your big fat volition decide that you're going to sin. See, God doesn't take away our old sin nature. He doesn't take away our volition that's what he would have to nearly do for us to persevere to the end in good works. Those are still there. So I don't know how long it is, but at one point, both you and I, after we were born again and we were filled with the Holy Spirit, decided, you know what, this is all fine and dandy, but that sin, I just, it looks awful, awful good. You know, I, I just, uh, I'm just going to do it. And you do it, and you sin. And it's, you know, what happened when, when Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit? They talked themselves right into it. Well, what's the big deal? It's just, just a fruit. All I'm going to do is just take one bite. I mean, don't we rationalize and just get ourselves right into sin? Well, you did that after you were saved at one point. And when you did, something happened. And again, it didn't have anything to do with what you felt like. But you automatically, with your negative volition, boom, you're over here in the carnal area. See, you became a square. <laughs> uh, you grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.30. You quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, one or the other. Then now you're in carnality. Now this ha plus H is gone. This is red because it's like an alert going off because your happiness, your contentment, your courage, your confidence, your security, all that is out the window because now... Your soul has been influenced by the old sin nature. You're no longer operating on spiritual standards. You're no longer thinking divine viewpoint. You're going to do it your way. You're going to satisfy your lust by sinning. And so God says, have at it. And you are. And there's going to be a point in time when you figure out, you know what? There's a verse in the Bible that says sin is fun for a season, something like that. That's an awfully short season. Because it is going to come back and, it, and you are going to be bitter, unhappy, confused. This is not where you want to be. You're going to just 
Little attitude sins will eat you alive. So what? A lot of people get to this point. They know they were. This is, let me tell you, this is the way a lot of people think. If they don't understand this whole thing, they'll say, you know, I thought I was saved here. But now I'm over here and I'm thinking things that are awful. I'm treating people and I'm just, I'm just not a good person. What happened? I must have lost my salvation. That's where a lot of them go. Because they don't understand the difference between spirituality and carnality. They make everything salvific. What they don't know is that the remedy to get back over here... See, this is arrogance. You're arrogant. God will let you do what you want to do. He says, don't do it. You do it anyway. And what do we have to do? This was so great about our God, about His whole system. Everything up here has to do with grace. We don't earn or deserve anything here. We don't earn to get all this up here because we simply believed here. And we don't deserve, when we're over here in carnality, by confessing our sins to get back over here and we're back in good standing with Him again. Just because we acknowledge a sin. Boy, when you start trying to explain what we call rebound to a legalist, that is a tough nut to crack. And if they say, are you trying to tell me that when I've said, what if I murdered somebody? Or what's even worse than that, what if I fornicated and I'm over here? What then? You say, well, when you acknowledge it to God, you're cleansed from your sins, you're back up here, you're, and you're right with Him again. And if they say, you mean, you're trying to tell me, just by acknowledging that sin, just by taking responsibility for that sin, you acknowledge that to God the Father, that it doesn't matter what, how heinous the crime was. It can even be a, a crime. By the way, when you acknowledge a sin, if it's a crime, are you still forgiven by God? Huh? Does this work for crime as well? Absolutely. Yeah, you're forgiven for God. That doesn't mean that man is going to forgive you. It doesn't mean that they're going to say, Oh, well, you rebound. Well, just uh, let him go. I know he's a serial martyr, but he felt bad about it and he acknowledged it. We'll just let him go. No. But you're right with God. That's the whole point. So we don't deserve any of this. But when we acknowledge, we're right back over in here, see? This is the only way, by the, by the way, that we can, ex- can get to this point where we are experientially sanctified. This is where God wants us to be all the time in here, but we're not. So we fluctuate. We, go, we just go like this. But the more time we spend here, the more this is going to happen. But this is only a potential. How many believers go through their entire life and they never even put it together that whenever they get out of this bottom circle, they're out of fellowship with God, and they get over here into carnality, do you know how many people, in fact, most believers, are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I must not have been saved to begin with, or I wouldn't be over here thinking this and doing this. Do you know how many believers are into that trap? You know what they don't understand? They don't understand any of this. If they understood this, they wouldn't be thinking of that here. And then you have some who get over here in a carnality. That's because of that black cat. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, tomorrow. Uh, 
what they don't understand when they don't understand that and they're over here they think oh well i got to make it up to god i'll be nice to my neighbor i'll bake him a rhubarb pie and that'll make it up or i'll count beads or i'll take a bath in the holy water whatever whatever they're trying to do something and they don't understand this is all it takes we can't do anything christ has already taken care of the sin what God wants us to do is change our attitude from arrogance to humility, and we acknowledge that we are humility, and that's what He wants. Boom, we're back in good stead again. If somebody offended you, what if you were walking down the road with a friend and they said something or did something that was very offensive to you, and they were wrong in doing it, if, if they didn't take responsibility for that, if they accused you of some heinous act, which was, which was a lie, and you said, well, that's not true. You need to, you need to acknowledge that that's, that's not true. And if they said, well, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I think it's true. Would you be in harmony with that person? No. But if they said, you know, I, 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 I understand that I was wrong and I'm taking responsibility for that, they might even ask you for forgiveness. Could you be back right again with them then? Yeah, you could because then they have humility. That's what this is all about. So the bottom circle has everything to do with persevering. The goal is to be experientially sanctified. Most believers don't have a clue that that's what they're living for. That's what God still is giving them breath for on this planet is so that they will grow up spiritually by being filled with the Holy Spirit then you are able to accomplish everything that God has for you. People who would say that you are not truly saved if you don't persevere, they're talking about up here. They don't know about this down. Well, they don't even really know about either one. They've got this one confused, and if you've got this one confused, you're never going to get this one right. Experiential. Just, I, you know, this would be good to draw a line right here. This is the point at salvation. This is everything that happens. The moment after salvation, from here down, it's all experiential. And if you can't distinguish between positional in the Scriptures and experiential, you're not going to understand what God has for you in this life. You're not going to understand. You're still in kindergarten. Now, I did all that so we can press on. Do you all have any questions or anything before I close this? Okay. Yes. I done lost my thought when I get this. <laughs> That's what you call. That's what a microphone short, does for people. Short-sighted. <laughs> no, where Paul talks about in the heavenlies, mm-hmm. that is positional. Mm-hmm. And then what we in life we're left here experientially to live out the Christian life, and that's where only way we can accomplish what James is advocating in his book, and what you've read in Titus and First Corinthians. That's. That's what all of it, the script, all scriptures given for, by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And that's all for down here on yeah. the bottom circle. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And when it says that we are already in the heavenlies, we are seated on thrones in the heavenlies already positionally. Uh-huh. 
And then you go into uh, Revelation and you start seeing that there are those who are sitting on thrones. There's going to be a reality to it. But in God's mind, it's already ha- we're already there because time is nothing for, for God. And from God's perspective, we are already sitting on thrones. Not all of us, those who are spending a, a maximum amount of time in the bottom circle, they're continuing to grow, they're learning, they're finding out how to execute God's plan. Those are the ones that are already sitting in the heavenlies, and that's positional. So you've got to look at every verse and distinguish whether it's positional or experiential. Remember, I gave you eight or nine words that had double meanings. And there was justification and righteousness, even eternal life. Uh, a host, inheritance, all these have double meanings. And the double meanings means one, in one sense it's positional, in another sense it's experiential. And if you don't know these, the difference between the two, what most people do is make them all positional. And if you make them all positional, then what you have is people having to work for their salvation. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry I went longer on that review than I anticipated. Here's where we're starting tonight. All right. Those who analyze the behavior of those who profess to be Christians in order to determine the validity of their salvation usually claim that they have a deficient faith if their behavior doesn't meet the standard they believe must be met for one to be a true Christian. Do I need to read that again? That's a mouthful. Let me do it again slowly. I want you to understand that. You have to understand this to understand where I'm going next. Those who analyze the behavior of those who profess to be Christians. In other words, there are a lot of people that would scrutinize your life if they know you. They're looking at your behavior. And what they're trying to do is say, are you a true believer or are you just profess to be a believer? And the way that they're going to determine that is to analyze your behavior. And if that behavior doesn't measure up to this made-up standard that they have floating around in their brain... If it doesn't measure up, then they would say the reason you don't measure up, your behavior doesn't measure up, is because you had a deficient faith. When you believed in Christ, it it really, it, it wasn't a strong enough faith. It wasn't a real quality faith. It was a weak faith. And so they say the reason that you your behavior isn't reflecting that you are a true believer, is that you had a problem with the faith when you first believed to begin with. It doesn't meet the standard. In other words, your faith is not meeting this made-up standard in their brain that they think a believer should meet. Therefore, because your behavior doesn't meet this standard, they say you had a foul faith. Uh, Sometimes they say it was a head belief and not a heart belief. You understand what they're doing? See, it's hardly ever articulated this way, but I want you to understand. That's when you start trying to determine someone's eternal destiny by their behavior, this is essentially what's going on. Now, they have made several mistakes in their analysis, and these are going to be very revealing as we look at them. Number one, first mistake is the only standard that God sets for one to become a Christian is faith alone in Christ alone. That's the first mistake in their analysis. They're looking at behavior. And what they should be looking at 
What you cannot see is the faith that one had when they believed. But you can't see that, can you? But what you can tell something about, not 100%, but you can determine to some extent about the faith they had when they supposedly believed the gospel is by what they say about Christ and how they were saved. Isn't that true? That's why we have so many confused believers because you ask most believers, are you going to heaven? You know what they say. I hope so. You don't know? Why don't you know? Well, if they were truthful, they'd say, well, the reason I don't know is because I'm a spiritual imbecile. I never studied the Bible. I just live by my emotions. That's why I don't know. But they're never going to tell you that. My point is, that the only standard in the Bible that God ever gives for receiving eternal life is faith alone in Christ alone. And they're not making that the standard. They're making someone's behavior the standard. Number two, any other standard would require works and would remove the need for grace. You got that? God in His matchless wisdom has devised a system whereby we are going to spend eternity in heaven with God and didn't do anything on our part to merit it. That's why it is just believing. It's just faith, which is non-meritorious. I'll get to that more in a moment. So if you say it's something, it's not just faith alone in Christ alone. If it has anything to do with your behavior, what are they looking at? They're analyzing your works, aren't they? So that's where they insert works into it. And if it has anything to do with works, then it's not by grace, right? What an insult to suggest to God, I'm ready to enter your heaven. Well, why? Have you accepted my gift of eternal life through my son's sacrifice? Well, no. But look at my behavior. I don't need your grace. What kind of insult is that? Point three. They also miss the point that believers continue to sin after salvation and sometimes cannot be distinguished from unbelievers. Just look at in the Bible. The first one that comes to mind is King David. Man after God's own heart. Jesus Christ, born from the line of David. The, the Abrahamic covenant included the part of it that uh, had to do with the Davidic covenant. All that about David. And, and yet, there are times in David's life, he didn't even look normal. He didn't even look like a regular person. He looked like a reprobate, like a pagan. which substantiates the fact that sometimes believers cannot be distinguished from unbelievers. They look the same. Point four. Some unbelievers have an exemplary behavior and some believers have disgusting behavior. Now, we don't have to rack our brains too hard to think of some believer that has disgusting behavior, do we? May I dare say we can look at our own life sometimes? Point five. 
These people who are analyzing the behavior, they, take, they do not take into consideration how believers vacillate between spirituality and carnality. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in the Reformed Calvinistic group, and once you get off into these areas, you start just gravitating to more false doctrines. You usually get into covenant theology. You get into the replacement theology. And most of them don't have a clue about what I showed you with the circles. And so this is some, another thing that those who are analyzing one's salvation by their behavior, they don't understand that every believer vacillates from the status of carnality to the, or from the status of spirituality to the status of carnality. I don't know right now how many of us are in status quo spirituality. It's possible that every one of us are. But I can assure you, I can guarantee you that that's not a permanent status. It might, even, might not even last till we get outside the door because we vacillate. The person that is looking at somebody's behavior says, I'm going to tell if that person is saved or not by their behavior, doesn't understand. They don't get this vacillating, these two different statuses. I have three sub-points here. A, carnal believers grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.13, and quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. When they sin, every believer sins. Every believer grieves or quenches the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're looking at someone's behavior when they're in that status quo carnality, what are you going to think? They're sure not living like a believer should. If they, if they were, they wouldn't be quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. B, spiritual believers acknowledge their sins, 1 John 1, 9, to regain the filling of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand that either. They don't know about this process at all. And C kind of sums this up. Those who are not aware of this spiritual process, believers fluctuating between spirituality and carnality, believe that one's behavior at any given time determines where they will spend eternity. And aren't you glad that that ain't so? Huh? I've talked to Catholics before. They don't understand anything about the circles and vacillating from spirituality to carnality. And I've asked them before. They say, well, I, when someone dies, you have to give them the last rites. Well, what if they don't get their last rites? Well, I don't know if they would say they go to hell. I don't know if they spend more time in purgatory or anything else. Fairy tale they want to come up with. I wouldn't want this to happen to me. You wouldn't want it to happen to you because if it was true, a lot of people think, see, a lot of people think because they don't understand carnality and spirituality and so forth that when they are uh, what we would call grieving the Holy Spirit, they know that they've done wrong. They might even feel guilty about it. But they don't know about these spiritual statuses, spiritual and carnal. So they think, wow, I must not be saved. And then they start trying to make it up to God because they don't know His Word. Aren't you glad that when you sin, you can say, Father, I did so-and-so, and you can be absolutely certain you're right back in harmony with Him. He's not holding grudges. He's not going to... Uh, he's not going to give you any di divine discipline. Do you know that divine discipline ends when you acknowledge your sin to God? If you're a good parent, you're going to teach your children that. 
what you want to do is teach your children, I need honesty and I need humility from you. And when you've done something that's wrong, if you come up to me and you said, I acknowledge that I ate the cookies and I'm not going to try to hide it, I respectfully submit that to you and whatever you want to do is up to you. If you said, you know what? Because you were humble, because you were honest, there's no discipline. Do you think they might be more apt to be honest with you and be humble with you? Point six. These same people fail to see that believers are kept by the power of God and not by their own power. 1 Peter 1.5. I love that verse. For we are kept by the power of God. What we do. See, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of preachers, priests, so-called apostles and bishops and all the rest of them are afraid to tell their congregations that no matter what you do in this life, you're still kept by God. That is, well, it's not up there, the top circle. What does it mean being kept by God? It means you're in Christ. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit. The calling and the gifts of God are irrevocable. It's impossible for Him to take them back. And the Bible describes how they are given, how He imputes these to you at the point of salvation. And so we're kept by the power of God. Now, if you have to endure, if you have to persevere in good works, it is also dependent upon your power as well, right? It's something added to the mix that you must do. It depends on you, and it's an ongoing process. That's not what salvation is, not from God. Point seven... They underestimate the potential of the old sin nature in the lives of believers. I had this worded first. They don't understand the power of the old sin nature. But I don't like that. Because Jesus Christ broke the power of the old sin nature when he was on the cross. Now, it has no power over us unless we decide to give it to the old sin nature. This is in, by the way, Romans chapter 6. Remember we were talking about we have been crucified with Christ and we don't have to let sin rule in our bodies anymore? Unbelievers have no choice in sin. But we can produce divine good and we came for the Holy Spirit and no longer. But it's still to want and when we do, what do we look like? An unbelief. of the spiritual life. They don't give a clue. What hurt to what happens in the information in the New Testament, which all that happens after salvation. And if your behavior isn't saved, you didn't have Thank you're focusing on the fact. And in salvation, the focus on the issue of your Yes. Uh, say that again so it'll get on the deal. Is there any series of Okay, you're talking about penance. I won't even get close to it this time, but I've already got it. If I, yeah, I know, but penance, linking it to the uh, expediency of your sins. And in sectors, you could allege, you could see penance. Never mind. That's the way you have to confess your sins. You have to repent of your sins. I've already said it. Go on, I've got to say this. They're saying, 
in order to be saved, you have to change your mind about, and I'm my contention, we love to sin. That's why we do it. Nobody holds a gun. All right, all right, Ron, you better sin. Do you have to have that to happen to sin? Of course not. None of us do. So we don't change our mind. Our nature is to sin. But that's, let's get on. I've got a few more minutes here. Okay, uh, these same people who are analyzing behavior to determine where someone is going to spend eternity, they fail to consider that what makes faith deficient, that would be unable to save, is its inaccurate content, not the qualitative nature of the faith itself. A faith that has any object other than the Lord Jesus Christ is not an accurate faith and cannot save. However, that shouldn't be. I changed that. It didn't come up here. Hold on just a minute. Let me change this. Just take a sec. There you go. Okay. However, a faith that has as the object, however, a faith that has, okay, excuse me, a faith that has him as the object is accurate and is saving. What makes a faith deficient or sufficient is the object, not the faith itself. You got that? Major point. Anytime somebody would suggest that, well, look at you. Well, you'd embarrass hell. And you say you're a believer? Huh. You're just professing faith. You didn't have the right kind of faith. You didn't, it didn't really work because look at your behavior. No, you can unequivocally say that what makes faith sufficient or insufficient is its object. Do you have the right object? It doesn't have anything to do with the faith itself. Those who try to make the quality of faith or the quantity of faith the issue in salvation ignore the true issue, which is Christ. Salvation cannot be a gift if the unbelievers must meet an unspecified standard of behavior. The only standard the Bible specifies for faith is that the object must be the Lord Jesus Christ. The way many try to determine if one's faith is real, that is saving, is to link it with obedience. They say that if a person's faith is true, they will be obedient. You see how many twists and turns and they just can't leave it alone. They always have got to get some type of work in it. Here's a quote. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. The real believer will obey. The concept of faith that excludes obedience corrupts the message of salvation. Clearly, the biblical content of faith is inseparable from obedience. Obedience is the inevitable manifestation of true faith. That was from John MacArthur, the gospel according to Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? That was the book. Now, I think John MacArthur is a good Bible teacher. I think he's, he's got a lot on the ball, but he has a, he's got a blind spot. 
because of his reformed theology that he uh, tenaciously adheres to, he thinks that faith, if it's true, will absolutely, the only word he left out of here was automatically produce good works. Won't falter. And that's a big hole. What it actually does is insert works into salvation that is only of grace. So I'm not just trying to disparage any of these writers. I think some of them have a lot to say that is good, but sometimes they have missed it. So this is the way that works is inserted into the perfect gospel that is only by grace. And the faith is not the issue. The only thing with regards to eternal salvation connected to faith is the object. And if the object is Jesus Christ, bingo, you're born again. You hit the jackpot. You win. Okay, well, I'm going to have to draw a line in the sand. I want to tell you something. I I have... uh, been exhilarated trying to put these things together. Because for a long time, these thoughts were circulating around somewhere. But I needed to organize them, synthesize them, and put them in, a, in, a, in something that flows so that people will be able to respond to those who would say, oh, well, that person is a believer. Look how, they, look how they live. And I want you to be so confident. I want you to be asking these same questions. Well, how good does a person have to be to prove that they're a believer? And by what standard do they measure? And where do you find that, that, that standard in the Bible? If you insert works, how can it still be by grace? Because these are opposites. Well, if we live the fight another day, we'll continue with this. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God of grace and mercy. And it doesn't depend upon us whatsoever. It all depends upon your perfect, gracious plan. There is so many lies and deception. There are so many people who are confused. But they're very dogmatic. They're very sure of themselves. We pray that you'll help us to have the confidence, not the arrogance, but the confidence in understanding your plan so clearly that we can just ask them simple questions for them to see the fallacy in what they are embracing. It's not a contest. It's not a debate. It's about people being freed from the lies of the, of the satanic forces and maybe even Satan and his demons himself. They're not our enemy. It's not about winning a debate. It's about truth. Help us not to shy away and recede into the shadows when we have opportunities to reason together with people who are in darkness. We pray that you will give us opportunity and that you will help us to really understand the importance of making you number one in our life. To continue to keep our momentum moving forward by taking in your word, putting the pieces together, and making life worth living. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.